it's very important to, to really make a point. This is not about privatization. It's about making money for the benefit of society as a whole. Now, if you use the wrong words, private management, etc., that you know immediately raises the class from, from people. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And we are, of course, proudly sponsored by Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. I'm Justin Marlowe, and I'm joined, as always, by my intrepid co-host, fiscal policy expert, chicken connoisseur, Marylander, Californian, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. <laughs> All things. <laughs> Thanks, Justin. I got to say, it's been quite a week here uh, in, in the, the broader D.C. region. Uh, my child had one day of school last week, thanks to a holiday and then lots of snow. So uh, so it's been interesting for us parents here in the uh, in the D.C. area, that's for sure. He's back <laughs> in school today, though. All good. <laughs> yeah, thank goodness. I had disruptive, to say the least. And I think I had heard, I've talked to some parents back there, too, that there were flashes uh you know flashbacks to to pandemic era stuff that Definitely. people would rather not relive if they don't have to so glad your things are mostly back on track for you well we have um, an episode today that's uh going in sort of a slightly different direction than what we normally do we have uh, dag detter on the podcast today dag has written a, a variety of books and, and public comments on what he likes to call the uh, public wealth of nations or the idea that uh, local gov state and local governments uh, governments generally but in the u.s especially state and local governments have uh, a large amount of wealth that goes untapped goes unused and a lot of his work has focused on uh, raising this issue trying to offer up solutions to the question of what can and should state and local governments do about this and a lot of it focuses on accounting for those assets just to really understand how much of those assets we have what you could do with them how the value of those assets compares to the way that we report the value of those assets on our balance sheets for our state and local governments today. It's a controversial perspective, and he's definitely someone who has garnered a lot of attention for suggesting some things that might to some seem pretty contrarian. Um, and yet, uh, as we like to do on the Public Money Pod, it's always interesting to get that perspective and uh, understand it and see if and when and where it offers up something that our listeners might be able to take with them and use. So Liz, we've there's lots of different dimensions of this, but in, in thinking about our conversation with Dag, you know, I'm reminded of, of a couple different things. You know, one is there's obviously this question of how we think about the value of the assets that governments have. And certainly for most of us, when we think about that, we think of infrastructure assets. And if you know anything about the history of governmental accounting, you know, the interesting thing about that is it's really not that long ago that we first started actually reporting the value of infrastructure assets. For the longest time we had in uh, pre-GASB 34, that is before governmental accounting standards statement, standards board statement 34, we had infrastructure assets in these what they called uh, account groups which were sort of accounting for those assets but but not exactly they were they were accounting for them but they weren't necessarily depreciating them or they weren't necessarily thinking about uh, whether we were investing in them or not they were just kind of there to recognize that it was a thing that governments either controlled or had some liability over gasby 34 comes along and we have to actually capitalize those assets we have to talk about what we spent to construct them or refurbish them, we're depreciating them. And in some cases, we're using 
what's, what's sometimes called the modified method or some other ways of thinking about the accounting for them. We're thinking about what it costs to maintain them and what we ought to be spending relative to what we are spending. The big innovation that came out of Gatsby 34 was that we were able to, for the first time, be able to say, is this government investing in its infrastructure assets or is it not? Which was surprisingly a very difficult question to answer before that and still is in some ways. I think most of us who've been following Gatsby 34 uh, since, you know, circa 1999, 2000, somewhere in there. Uh, most would say that we, we have more useful information in the financial statements than we had before then. And at the same time, you could argue, and it's the argument that Dag and others make, that th that's only a small slice of the assets actually that are under a, a state or local government's control, that so much of, of the value of state and local government is in land and rights of way and public buildings and other kinds of assets that we may or may not account for using traditional governmental accounting for, for capital assets. And it's those assets that if managed differently might be able to unlock considerable new revenues or at a minimum, just give us a better idea of whether we could be doing something different with them and creating a different kind of public value as a result. Again, a controversial perspective, but it does, when you put it in the context of the way that we've, think, we've been thinking about governmental assets for some time now, it does sort of take it in a different direction and raise some other questions. Uh, you are familiar with this debate. In fact, uh, this is not your the first time you've had a conversation with, with Dag. What sort of comes to mind when you think about these challenges of thinking about assets, asset management, and what it means to have public value around infrastructure and state and local government? Yeah, I remember the first time I spoke with uh, Dag was almost a decade ago at this point, and I've always found his um, his take extremely interesting. And in the sense that he's right, governments own a lot of infrastructure, real estate, a lot a lot of you know bricks and mortar, and so often they they do view it as as a drag, um, something they have to spend money on to take care of. And it, it, and they do have to spend money on it to take care of, as you've just very well illustrated with the infrastructure assets. But they are also assets, and uh, and they have value, and that is where kind of that that break is. And it it reminds me um, of of when I was a reporter for um, covering D.C. local government. I mean, there's and I one of the things I focused on was economic development and. There are several examples of this in my my time reporting in D.C., but I'll just give one. And D.C. has a number of schools that are downtown. These beautiful old, you know, turn of the century brick school buildings that are had been long been long been shuttered. And it took the city so many years, decades, to turn turn a single school over into a productive use again. And there was one in particular, I remember, this was a couple years, uh, this was probably in the late 2000s, uh, around 2010 or so, when there's this school called the Franklin School that had been vacant since the early 2000s, when at that point it, it had been used as a homeless shelter for the city. They cleared the shelter because they were going to have a private developer come in and turn it into housing. No wait, a museum. No wait, a, you know, kept changing and changing and changing. And, uh, and I remember writing the story like they'd finally gotten... Uh, finally gotten a tenant in the building and they were going to redevelop it. And then that tenant, and then nothing happened for another five years. And, and finally, you know, today there is, there's a museum there. There's a cool looking museum in that school, but the city still has, I don't know how many other of those beautiful old brick school buildings that are shuttered that it still has to do something with. And, and these are like on K Street downtown where all the lobbying firms are. This is very, very high end, you know, very valuable property. But the city has always looked at it as something it has to do something about, you know, and 
and with that kind of that drag feeling on on the balance sheet and uh, and that to me is just a great illustration of of both the reason why we we could should maybe be looking at these these things differently and the huge opportunity there but also why it's so difficult for you know when when governments have to do this i mean that governments have and city leaders have a million other things they're doing um in in the private sector you have a group of people that is solely focused on doing this and they want to get it done as fast as possible so they can start making money. That's just not built into uh, into most government, you know, local government offices. So it's just very difficult for governments to do something like that very quickly. They Maybe they could be doing it faster with the resources they have. But I think uh, that example in D.C. is by no means uh, the only example of that around the country. You know, I think that most of our listeners could relate to something like that and in, in their own city. Definitely. That's such an important point too, because it, it just, it does speak to the, I think the orientation that a lot of policymakers have, you don't necessarily get elected to local office or to state office to get involved in sophisticated asset management systems. You, you get elected to deliver important services in your community, you know, to solve problems that you see right in front of you, which usually involve programs and people and services and not necessarily mm-hmm rethinking how we want to leverage the value of public assets. And yet you could say that if we did a better job with that, that it might free up more revenues to do a lot of the programs and services that we care about, or at least you think a little bit differently about how we might go about doing that in the first place. And so it is an interesting, it is an interesting set of questions. I think the, the, you know, the question of when and where the demand for this kind of information that we're talking about in many ways is the central question. How do you get elected officials interested in this? How do you introduce them to the idea that this is a tool, this is a resource that's available to them if they choose to unlock it? And if you're going to do that, then how do you explain what are some very complex, very challenging technical sorts of issues in a way that people can can understand, which of course is always a challenge. So it's absolutely a, a really interesting set of questions. We don't often think of governmental accounting as the, the center, uh, you know, the main character in, a, in an otherwise really compelling story. But in this case, I think it's probably fair to say that it is. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Dave Detter, who is a longtime advisor to governments, investors, and others all over the world on all matters of public money, public infrastructure, public wealth. Dave, so much. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us here on the Public Money Pod. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Yes, and and I think this is not. I think this is definitely our first international podcast recording. As you're you're uh, hailing from Sweden right now. Uh, Doug, you've written a couple of books. Um, the one we're here to talk about, I think, the most is the the Public Wealth of Cities. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and kind of lay out for our listeners what your argument is and what that has to do with uh, state and local public finance professionals. I mean, it, it's public wealth is is actually hidden because we don't have the accounting to show us about uh, the balance sheet. We're just looking at the budget. We're just looking at the cash. We're looking at debt and and what the budget, if it's um, in deficit or in surplus. So it's really making government professionals, finance professionals, flying blind. And they're missing uh, the biggest trick for any finance professional, which is the balance sheet. And that is both the liability side, most importantly, pension, unfunded pension liabilities. But uh, you also have a lot of assets 
which is not in the financial statements. The best example is probably Pittsburgh, where we did the valuation and found that the market value of uh, the real estate alone was 70 times over the book value. So that shows you a little bit of the opportunity. Wow. If we start having proper accounting and proper management, we could probably generate revenues in excess of what cities are today collecting in taxes. Can you give us, a, I know you talked about this in the book and in, in some of your other public talks, you've gone into this in a little bit of detail. I wonder if you could just maybe ground this a little bit in an example. So you mentioned the real estate value in particular. It's pretty clear that the, what we might call the book value is different from the market value. Uh, why is the market value so much higher than what we're seeing, say, on the balance sheet for a local government like Pittsburgh compared to the way uh, real estate professionals or others might see it? Well, I mean, the private, I mean, governments are basically forcing the private sector or uh, and private individuals to mark their assets to market. But they're not doing that for themselves. And, uh, you know, I would rather put that question to you being a professional in, in, in this space. That's a, a political economy question. But I mean, there's a lot of speculations why governments don't or why the U.S. government does not want to show what it owns or what it has in liabilities in terms of um, unfunded pension liabilities, which causes you know havoc on, on public finances. Why you don't do that when you're asking the uh, private sector and private individuals to come clean on these things? You know, it's, it's probably your guess is better than mine. But if you would do that in the private sector, you would probably go to jail. It sounds to me like you're suggesting this is maybe intentional or or is it just um, something that's more a, a this is the way we've always done it kind of thing? Or um, I'll, I'll give you an example that I, I was given in, in Atlanta, which is that there was this uh, basically a, a dirt lot in the middle of, of the city. And I think it had been valued once decades ago and that value stuck on paper as the city built up around it and of course obviously a lot straight in downtown atlanta is worth more than i, I forget the value but it was definitely less than a hundred dollars on paper <laughs> so and and it was just you know one thing it, it stuck over the years it wasn't as if somebody went back and and revalued it and um so maybe an oversight is is the is a better way to put it the blame is not on the individual politicians or, or finance officials. This is Gatsby telling, telling uh, government officials that they cannot value their, as far as I understand, they, they are not supposed to value their uh, PPEs uh, other than at historical cost, which means that you have these discrepancies. And the point is, if you don't mark to market like the rest of the world is, is doing, um, then you you don't know what you own and you don't know what you owe. In other words, your pension liabilities are going to be causing you real problems today and tomorrow, and you're leaving that to future generations. It also means that you're not investing because you don't see the value of your investments or your assets, and there's no incentive for politicians to invest in infrastructure because it doesn't show in the balance sheet. So I wouldn't put the blame on individuals. There's no scheme here from, from certain individuals. It's a system which is wrong. We can definitely talk about the the political economy surrounding that. And I think there's 
that's definitely something that's been debated. Who benefits, you know, from having the, the kind of financial reporting we have and, and who doesn't benefit and, and what sorts of value might be being left on the table. We could definitely talk about that. I am curious to hear a little bit more about some of the technical side of this, because I have heard folks who have looked at this sort of said it's very challenging to be able to do the kind of valuation, the kind of mark to market that you're, you're talking about. I wonder if you could maybe tell us just a little bit more about the Pittsburgh experience that you mentioned. You know, what were some of the just the technical challenges that you encountered, if any, in coming up with the market valuation for some of the public assets that you're describing? No, there's no I mean, there's no I mean, this is not rocket science. This is done in the private sector every day. So doing valuations of of these real estate assets or uh, waterworks or whatever you like, an airport, a metro system, I mean, that's done in the private sector every day. So the excuse that this is very difficult, that's completely rubbish. And, you know, accountants have done this for hundreds of years and, and they do it in the private sector. But the reality is that if you take real estate, which is the most hidden, probably, public real estate probably amounts to one times GDP in the US. So it's 26 trillion US dollars. The total amount of public sector assets is probably 75 trillion. I mean, this is the world's largest wealth manager and they don't have their accounts in order. It's every city, county and state and federal government in the US that does not understand what it owns. And therefore, if you don't know what you owe, you cannot manage it because you don't know that it exists. And it's the same with pension. So, so uh, if you would manage this, you know, professionally and have proper accounting, that would mean a trillion dollar every year in additional revenue to the government. It could mean you can lower taxes or you can invest that in infrastructure or housing. You're having problems with housing. You're having problems with all kinds of things, climate change, demography, uh, as we all do in the developed and, and, and less developed world. But a great help would be to have proper accounting, just like any business, and, and manage your assets and liabilities better, that would give you a trillion dollars. That's that's a nice sum to have. Sure, that, I mean that makes sense. The in doing some of these valuations that you're describing, is there are you making in real estate, for example, which you've mentioned a couple times, which I think is an interesting case in coming up with those sorts of valuations. Is there a comparable private sector use for what is now? publicly owned land, and, and that's, those are the... This is just a quick and dirty, just to get an understanding. So we've probably done 50 cities in the US and come up with some pretty amazing numbers. And what they all amount to is that, you know, the real estate owned by the public sector is worth one times GDP of that city or county or, or state or whatever it is. And, and it uh, is equal to half the value of the real estate market. So the real estate market in every US city Half of it is controlled by the public sector, but mismanaged. That's why you have so many parking lots and so many places that are just left for years without being developed. Because if, they, if it would have been owned by the private sector, you can be sure that they you know, want to make money out of it. I think that touches on one of the, I guess, feelings of caution that the public sector might have about about privately managed public public assets, which is that that idea of protecting protecting the larger public's interest, not everything. You know, the government is not a business. Um, it's it's responsible for doing things for the public good, and sometimes that costs money rather than makes money. So what would you say to uh, public officials to try to kind of, you know, calm, calm their nerves about the idea of having a public asset privately managed? But it's very important to, 
to really make a point. This is not about privatization. It's about making money for the benefit of society as a whole. If you use the wrong words, private management, etc., that you know immediately raises the clause from, from people. And, and you want to avoid that. You, you want to use the proper words so that their defense system is not alarmed. And, and because this is the difficult thing when talking to politicians and to you know to, to a broader audience is to avoid uh, triggering their traditional alarms about these things. Uh, so that's why I think it's it's very important to make people see that this is a this is a this is the biggest wealth manager in the world. This is the biggest you know wealth manager in your country, in your city, in your county, and you should have demands on them that they actually manage that man- money in your interest, so that you know it benefits society as a whole and not get wasted. I mean, the question you could always ask is if there is a three percent return over your GDP on, on, on these kind of assets. And we have zero today, or in the US, I would probably say you have a negative return. Who's taking that money? Where is it going? Just to follow up on that a little bit, you know, I know another one of the arguments against the, the kind of asset management that you're describing is that when you make those kinds of decisions about what to do with particularly uh, land, land especially, you run the risk as the public sector of then getting into lines of business that could displace private sector activity. Do you have a response to that? I mean, in the work that you've done here, are those concerns about crowding out? If we, if we stick to real estate, you have already displayed, you own half the real estate market in the US. How is that for displacement? And by not, by not valuing them, you are dumping the prices. You, and, and by not uh, having market value, you're not creating the incentive to build houses. If you had market value on your real estate, you would have found it very profitable to build houses and you wouldn't have a housing crisis. You would have affordable houses everywhere, despite the whole debate about NIMBYs and everything, because housing is, is about supply and demand. And you don't have enough supply because there's no incentive to build because you think there's a lack of, of, of land or real estate, but there's no lack of it. It's just a lack of information where it is. All this debate, you've had a debate for 20 years about maintenance and infrastructure investment. There's no lack of funding for this. It's just lack of information, and you're not using the balance sheet that you have that could pay for this. Instead, you're using it, you're, you're paying it through taxes, and that is stifling private sector growth. There are a few places in the U.S. that have sort of gone down this path, right? And we've, we've talked about them a couple times on this podcast. We think about things like urban wealth funds, that uh, places like Salt Lake City, and we've talked a little bit already here today about Atlanta, and a few others have, have gone down that path. Do you see that as the, the, a development in the direction that you're describing? And if so, uh, what, what more could or should be done to uh, try to realize the sort of value that you're describing? Well, I, I think the critical, without going into detail of, of what they're doing, but I think the critical thing is, is to have for a city is, for, first of all, to think, I would say, think big, to have the courage to think big, because if you're going to do this properly, the idea is a little bit like if you have forest or some kind of natural resources, if you have natural resources, I mean, of course, you can sell it at the coalface, you can sell your logs to somebody in the next state and they take the logs and, and they cut them up and, and they sell them as woods or they make furniture of them or something else. And every step in that, they add value to that 
wood. So it depends on you who owns that forest. How much value do I want to capture from this forest that I own? Do I say, well, I don't have the competence, I don't even have the time or the energy to cut it up. I'll just sell it to my neighbor for, for $10 uh, a cubic, cubic feet. Uh, or I cut it up and then I can sell it for 30 pounds, $30 a, a cubic feet. Or I'll make a, you know, furniture of it uh, and, and then I can sell it for $150. So it's really up to you. How much value do you want to capture? So that's when you know, many governments just say, well, we don't have the competence. That's correct. You don't have the competence. That's why you set up a public wealth fund and hire that competence. Just like you hire somebody to be you know, an expert firefighter or police, you're sitting on a huge amount of value. So you should take care of it and make sure that you're delivering that to the citizens so that you can afford to maintain or even you know, change the pipes in, in the water system or the, you know, the, your airport or your metro stations, and etc. In my view, a government should try to capture as much value as possible. So really to create a wealth fund that can actually you know, deliver the furniture. So you make 150 bucks per cubic feet. I think that is the vision you should have, the courage you should have. But that means you have to pay some professionals, which means that there has to be some critical size to that fund. If you just put in three properties that you are comfortable losing, so to speak, or you know, to gamble with, that's not going to work. It works best if you do it on scale most of the time, all of what you've got. And in some cities who have not done the county-city merger, you know, it might be better to do it on a county scale. I've been to maybe 30 or maybe more cities in the U.S., and you have the same problem all over the place, and that is waterworks that needs huge amount of money. What do you do? You, you privatize that, which I think is madness. If you put together one of these funds, you would generate so much money that you can invest and replace the water system, your airport, and all kinds of things. Doug, I was just thinking that I, I looked through my archives, and the first time I interviewed you was back in 2015, and uh, and that story was after you'd written the, uh, the the Wealth of Nations, Sovereign Wealth of Nations book. And in, in that interview, you and I talked about politics and how that can be a barrier. Um, we Amtrak was, was the example, I think, as being a great example of how you could consolidate Antrac, you know, have it serve half the states it serves, it would be much more efficient, possibly make money, but then it would leave out half the nation. And quite frankly, the government's not going to support something like that, because, largely because of, of, of politics. It's not going to support um, spending money on something that doesn't that only serves half of the states, even though it would probably be most of the population. So how do you, I guess, how do you respond to that in terms of, of what you know, local leaders, especially elected officials, this is something they have to navigate every day, balancing politics with with these other decisions, um, you know, protecting taxpayer dollars uh, and weighing the benefits of, of the public good. What advice would you have for public officials um, who, who are thinking about these things? I mean, the important thing here is, again, understanding where your money goes. As you have it today, politicians and public finance officials do not have a clue where the money goes. Because as soon as you mix a commercial objective with a policy objective, you're dead. So the important thing is to, you can call them 
universal service obligations. That's often the case for post office, for railways, for everything that you know is, is trying to support. You can, you can even do that for housing, is to make sure that you are um, splitting up supply and demand. So call it the public wealth fund if you want. That is completely separated from politics. It's only there to make financially astute investments and maintenance and, and, and create a, a rate of return that can be used for the benefit of society as a whole. Now, if you need a subsidy for those trains or something, or for, let's call it, uh, let's call it Alaska, if you are the post office and everything in the U.S. is profitable to deliver mail and parcels, but not Alaska. We have an Alaska in Sweden. It cost, I think it was 2,000% more than, than, than the rest of the country. I mean, it was, it, it was absolutely mind-blowing. And what we did was wow. just split. So the post, we, we told the post office, tell us what you can deliver commercially and get a, get a rate of return, which is acceptable. And then the rest, we outsource and have people bid and, and get basically tax money to, to, to do that service because we want the service to be done. But we don't want that service to be mixed up in your accounting because then, quite truthfully, we would never know whether you are you know, profitable or not. It's having a clean, clean understanding of you know, where the money goes is absolutely essential so that I can compare a post office, call it a, you know, a logistics with any other logistics company, and I can say, why don't you have 18% return? You should have that, EBITDA. And then you can start your detective work and start to understand what's, what's wrong operationally, what's wrong with your capital structure. That's how you basically go through these things. But if everything is mixed, they're getting subsidies for something and they're supposed to be professional on other things. You know, you can never do that tracing. So uh, it's quite fine to have, you know, for Amtrak to have certain lines that are not really you know, commercial, but we want them anyway. But then they should be completely outsourced. Of course, in the U.S. that's different because Amtrak owns the tracks as well. So it's it's more difficult with that system. In Europe, we have that the, the, the tracks is separate from the operations. So it's easier to have competition on one line saying, okay, we want that line to be outsourced. Who wants to bid for it? And then we take the best price and the best offer that we get. And it's completely paid by tax dollars. But the other lines, we expect... Uh, a commercial rate of return. Well, thanks so much, Dag Detter, advisor to governments and businesses around the world on all things infrastructure, public wealth, public money. We really appreciate you giving us some time today on the Public Money Pod. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Okay. Well, thanks again to Dag. That was a, he's not short of opinions on this, on this topic. And it's something that he is, uh, he feels really passionately about and you can definitely tell that. I hope our, our listeners got some good takeaways from there and some things to think about. The story I pulled for this week's uh, ripped from the headlines segment is from the C- CT mirror as in Connecticut mirror and, and the datelines from Meridian, Connecticut. The uh, headline is called, says Meridian officials look to sell vacant city owned land. And, uh, and the story is exactly about what the headline says. But I thought it was an interesting connection with, with what we've talked about. So I'll, I'll kind of go through some of the, some of the highlights here. So uh, city officials are, are working their way through what they call a vast list of city-owned property that they want to return to the tax rolls. 
instead of doing it through an urban wealth fund or, or something like that, though, they are looking at selling them. Um, the city has a list of about 700 properties that it's been um, kind of building over the last 18 months. The story says the process is laborious, whether it's uh, land in a neighborhood, at a school, or near a reservoir. And they're quoting the city's director of economic development here, Joseph Feast, and he says it takes time to go through the entire list. Um, he adds that the um, best next use needs to be identified for each property. That does sound laborious when we're talking about 700 plus properties. So the story also quotes a local council member, Bruce Fontanella, who says, uh, if we sell them at a bargain price to get them back on the tax rolls, everyone benefits. He adds that even in some cases, the city may be prepared just to transfer the property. Uh, a couple more points here. They, the story outlines uh, several different specific properties. There's a task force that has is considering three parcels near a boys and girls club. The bottom line is that this panel is now voting on each and every single property. The story concludes by saying that the next the next meeting of this task force, however, has not, not been scheduled, but at that next one, whenever it is, they have more at least two more properties to add. I pulled out these particular takeaways because to me it it illustrates the point, you know, kind of the the other side of this. A lot of times governments do look at this, look at look at all of their excess properties, all of what they have, and, and they do sell it because that is, it, it is a faster process than, than what we've described earlier on in the episode of, of the government keeping it and managing the redevelopment itself. They, they do note that, you know, once you get it back out there into the private sector, it, it is returning it to the tax rolls. You can tax, you can get the property tax from it. Uh, presumably there's, there's um, an economic generation from whatever activity is going on there. So you do, you do get that piece back, but you do also lose that, that, that asset kind of forever. Um, and so there's, there, that's, that, that's the trade-off. And that, the example in this story tends to be more of what happens today, I think, than, than the idea that, uh, that we've discussed for most of the rest of this episode. And I just wanted to, to point that out because I thought it was an interesting sort of juxtaposition in terms of, of what we have discussed up to this point. Justin, what are some of your, your takeaways from, from, this, from this story out of Connecticut and just kind of the, the, the general um, act of, of cities selling their properties instead of you know, doing what we've been discussing before? Yeah, it's a really interesting piece, and I'm, and I'm glad we have a, a chance to talk about it. There's two things that, that come to mind. One, as you had said, it, it really does make clear the stark contrast between the kind of public wealth approach that we were just that we were discussing with Dag and and what is happening here, which is essentially saying we realize that there may be public wealth here, but the the administrative and other hassle that's associated with managing it as a public asset just does not add up. And so we're going to sell it, put it back into the private sector and deal with the trade-offs that come with that. And that's fine. That's a choice that a lot of communities make. I think if you are a supporter of the public wealth funds notion, you might look at that and say, gosh, if you just were willing to do a little bit more work to go beyond what you're doing to sell this property and think about setting up something like a public wealth fund, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can <laughs> have that have that value and have it returning public value rather than turning it over to the private sector. You could still potentially generate those tax revenues. You could still potentially see all kinds of other spinoff revenues coming into the government as a result of that. But instead we make the decision to to sell it. And so there's there's you know, there's that. If you're a proponent of the public wealth funds approach, you look at this and you say, see, you're willing to do most of the work 
that we're talking about anyway. So why not just go a little bit further and realize the full value? But I think that's a fair point. At the same time, what also jumped out to me at this was, you know, a point that, that Deg was making when we were talking about setting up something like a public wealth fund. And, the, and he made a really, I think, interesting and important point there about aspirations. Having a clear vision at the outset of what it is that you as a public sector would like from these kinds of assets. And I think what we're seeing here is this is a community that is is doing exactly that. They're going in the other direction. They're saying, we're going to scale down. Uh, our vision is that we control fewer and fewer of these kinds of assets because for whatever reason, perhaps we think that the private sector can do a better job. Perhaps we just don't see the public value the same way that we used to, whatever it might be. There's a decision being made here uh, to to pursue a vision that is scaling back, taking that scope down a little bit. That's fine too, right? Those are public policy choices. And I think what's nice about this article is it it's a nice kind of counterpoint in some ways, a vision driven, a, a clear policy direction being set, but it's taking this management of public assets in a very different direction than what we've talked about so far today. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack, Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on The Public Money Pod.